great to see everyone again, uh, and great. I think it's great that we've uh, done a series on Revelation here at Granville. Uh, I was really excited when that decision happened. Um, and when I would tell people, oh, we're doing a series on Revelation, and they would ask me, well, which passages are you preaching? And I would tell them, and uh, they would often say, ah, you get the easy bits. <laughs> well, there's uh, nothing easy about uh, this passage, uh, but it is exciting. It's always exciting to end a sermon series and bring the themes that we've been talking about together uh, to a close and wrap it all up. Um, and it's even more exciting when that series is through a book. And so you have to think of the book and have to close that off. And as if that weren't excitement enough, uh, the book is revelation. So you have to end off the series and you have to end off the book and you have to end off the entire Bible. <laughs> and you have to do it all in about 25 or 30 minutes. <laughs> so uh, I, it is exciting. It is exciting. Uh, so let me start by saying that I have a confession to make. When I think about humanity's future, I am not the most hopeful person in the world. In fact, a lot of the time, I'm downright cynical. We like to think of our modern era as one of progress and enlightenment. And superficially, it might seem true. We have some more humane laws and attitudes than we have before. Our standards of hygiene and living have improved. We live longer than we ever have. But all it takes is reading a little bit of history and a little bit of news to discover that as human beings, we haven't changed all that much. A couple of months ago, I was waiting at a crosswalk. And just as we got the go signal, uh, the man in front of me lit a cigarette. And the wind was just right, so this first puff of smoke hit me right in the face. And I think most of us would have reacted the same way I did. I got annoyed. And that wordless feeling of holier-than-thou judgment that I think we all know so well filled my head. But as we were walking across the street, I happened to notice that his lighter fell out of his pocket. And for some reason, the annoyance I was feeling got overlaid with a kind of sympathy. And I imagined him going for his lighter the next time he needed it and finding it wasn't there. And after all, I remembered that, oh, well, I own a pipe. And occasionally, I get together with some friends on a porch and we pretend to be hobbits. <laughs> so it takes a serious amount of hypocrisy for me to be annoyed by smoking. And putting aside the question of whether I was enabling an addiction, I picked up the lighter, jogged ahead a few steps, and gave it back. And all of this took absolutely no more than 10 seconds. In such a space of time, all of us are capable of the most priggish self-righteousness 
and the most random acts of kindness? Do we even know which one we'll choose until we choose it? At any given moment, and even in the same moment, we can be monsters or saints. And I wonder if we're ever one or the other, or if we're always both. I think at best we are people with broken and divided hearts. And this is precisely why we need prophets. It's precisely why we need the book of Revelation. John's visions given to him by God are not only meant to change how we see the world, but also to change how we live. And by changing how we live, the visions become part of the way that God is changing the world. William Blake was an English poet who lived in the early 1800s as Europe was becoming more and more industrialized, something he found appalling. And he believed that artists and poets had a prophetic role in society with a mission to reshape reality, not through factory smokestacks and expanding cities, but through the spiritual awakening of the imagination. And in one of his most famous poems, he pleaded for divine inspiration to pursue that calling and vowed to change the world. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. And immediately below this, he wrote a verse from Numbers 11, the cry of Moses. Would to God that all the Lord's people were prophets. Blake wanted to see his own world reshaped, to see the hope promised at the end of Revelation, that new Jerusalem descending from the sky, fulfilled in his own country. For him, the prophetic vocation was the task of building hope in that future, and it was the vocation of all humanity. The prophecy of Revelation focuses on God, the one who sits on the throne as the universe's center of gravity, and the call for all creation to worship him because he is the creator. And this inherently denies the Roman Empire's claim to rule the world and rejects its oppressive dominance over people's lives. Rome and its empire are symbolically given the name Babylon, the greatest evil name of the Old Testament. And by extension, every empire everywhere in the world is called Babylon. Empires are constantly trying to build a future based on what we can achieve by ourselves. They rely on self-sustained security an arrogant nationalism, and oppression of the lower classes. It might look efficient and stable, but God is nowhere in the picture. Even and especially if people pay lip service to the idea of worship, 
but casually go about making their own plans come Monday morning. And in the middle of this oppressive and arrogant empire, the book of Revelation lights a fire of hope. In the first century Mediterranean, Revelation encouraged Christians to endure persecution. In the 21st century West, it challenges Christians to see our own society in a different way, maybe a starkly different way than we're used to. Prophets are sent by God with two primary goals, and the first is to criticize the empire way of thinking and turn us back to face the God who is the center of everything. But the second is to hold out hope, a hope that goes beyond conquering the empire. Overthrowing the devil is great, but it's not where the story ends. And it's not where our hope truly lies. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Okay, now what? Because it's not enough to critique the empire way of thinking. It's not enough to defeat the dragon and the beast. If we're going to move forward at all, we have to be driven by the hope of the alternative to Babylon the alternative to empire, and the alternative to our broken, divided hearts. And Revelation has two important ways of building our hope. The first is the way of memory. We're called to remember the story that we're in. John does this by constantly interpreting his visions in light of Scripture. In fact, I'm convinced that the reason God chose him to receive these visions was that because he knew his Bible intimately and he'd be able to understand what they meant. People sometimes ask me, what's the one thing I should read to be able to understand Revelation? And the answer is the Bible. And the vision of the New Jerusalem is steeped in the story of Scripture. In fact, John wasn't even the first to see it. The prophet Ezekiel describes his own vision of a vast temple complex, the size of a city, complete with 12 gates for the 12 tribes of Israel, and an angel telling him to measure the dimensions. The prophet Isaiah described the renewal of Jerusalem after the exile as though the entire cosmos is renewed. God declares in Isaiah 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And Isaiah then shows how the nations enter the city when God sends out witnesses to bring them into worship. And both Isaiah and Ezekiel promise the end of exile in Babylon. And the climactic endings of their books are combined at the climactic ending of Revelation. And then John pulls everything together with the story of God's original creation to energize our memory of the entire biblical story. We're called to remember that this is a story of our broken and divided hearts and the exile in which we live. 
But this is also a story written by God who restores what is broken and unites what is divided. We're called to hope in a future that is shaped by that story, remembering God's powerful acts of creation and salvation, remembering that we're dependent on God to make such a future possible because only the maker of all things can make all things new. Now, we need to remember that the story that we're living in, but by itself, it's not enough to bring hope. If we're going to picture the future beyond Babylon, we need the second thing. That re- the second thing that Revelation gives us is imagination. Imagination lets us see the world around us with different eyes. It lets us walk in someone else's shoes and think about what the world must be like for them. Now, only imagination can picture what we've never seen with our eyes. But what we're asked to to imagine is surprising. One of the things you discover as you sit down with Revelation is that it's dominated from beginning to end by cities. It's a letter to seven churches in seven cities, Pergamum, Laodicea, Ephesus, and so on. And Rome is pictured as Babylon, like I said before. But in the story of the Bible, cities are usually compromised places. Actually, more than that, cities are fundamentally expressions of brokenness. When we build cities, we level mountains, raise forests, and dam rivers. We look at the interconnected ecosystems of God's created order, and we call it wilderness, chaos. In the Bible, cities tend to embody the empire way of thinking, and they're denounced for their injustice and their arrogance. Babylon, Nineveh, Tyre, even Jerusalem itself comes up for judgment, not once, but twice. The Bible doesn't like cities very much. So when we expect that the new world will be the unspoiled Garden of Eden all over again, what do we get? A city. And not only is it a city, but it's also a lot like the cities that John himself knew. Cities used to have walls, and the gates would be shut at night. They buried the dead in cemeteries outside the walls, and the biggest and best cities boasted their wealth with all the gold and precious materials that they could get. And the New Jerusalem has all of this. But we're also told that this city is new. And the Greek word kainos is one that's used when something is new in terms of its quality or its essence. When God promises a new world, he sanctifies the idea of the city, and makes it holy. We live in a story, 
and stories move forward, which means that while we're reminded of Eden and the innocence of humanity's childhood, God doesn't just push the reset button. This is the end of the story, not the beginning. We're not doomed to repeat a cycle of empire and exile forever. A new story is going to be written, even as this one comes to an end. Where our cities have failed to glorify God, this one will succeed. So what makes this city different? What makes it new? Why is a city the central image of our hope? The angel says to John, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, using a metaphor from chapter 19 that described the people of God. So the city is the bride, and the bride is the city. The apostles are the foundations, and the tribes of Israel are the gates. This is a city built on, entered through, measured, and defined by people. We're so used to thinking of the new Jerusalem as a place that we've forgotten what the angel says. We've forgotten God's promise that he will live among us and be our God and we will be his people. And if God dwells in the city and the city is the people, then the new Jerusalem is not a city in which we will live with God. We are the city in which God will live. And when God lives in us, our broken and divided hearts are changed forever. The new Jerusalem is not a castle in the air that we get raptured up into away from earth. It's the transforming and redemptive spirit of God that comes down and makes us new. In Deuteronomy, Moses implored Israel to circumcise their hearts because the law was only there to show them the way of God, the way of love. And the Torah that we mistakenly think is only a rule book is in fact a call to a transformed heart. And the gospel's good news is that Jesus is transforming them already. As St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What Revelation calls us to hope for is the ultimate completion of our transformation, when we will at last become what we were always made to be, his representatives in the world. Instead of the empire, we can build 
a different kind of city. Instead of building our own security and control, we can rest safely in what Jesus has done for us and in us. And from resting in our identity as servants, we can work to heal the world. By centering ourselves on the throne, we will reign with him forever and ever, world without empire. And as much as the new creation is made by God and the blood of the Lamb, we can't deny that humans have a role to play in the work. People are not only identified as the city itself, but also as particular parts of the city. That people are foundation stones suggests that we're part of building community. That people are gates suggests our role as faithful witnesses through whom the nations come into the community. The church has been given a message of reconciliation to give to the world, and it is that witness which brings people back to God. The one Lord has made one church, and he has sent it out on one mission. There's a song we like to sing here at Granville, and I remember the first time we sang it, and I was loving it, and then we got to the last line of the last verse. We are your church. We are the hope on earth. And I cringed. Like I said, I'm not always the most hopeful person. And unfortunately, that can be especially true when I consider the many ways that the church of this world has failed to live the way Jesus taught. But as I kept listening to the rest of the song, I started to hear it as a prayer for him to act where we have failed. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made to see the captive's hearts released, the hurt, the sick, the poor at peace. We lay down our lives for heaven's cause. And occasionally, I do still cringe slightly at the end of the last verse. I'd still rather put my hope in Christ than in the church. But if all these other lines are true, if Christ rules our hearts, if we really can see why we're made, if he lives in us, then and only then that last line is true. So we remember the story that we're in. We imagine what Jesus will do when he returns. And more than this, we imagine what we are able to do now when Jesus lives in us. Imagine the city without injustice. Imagine civilization without the empire. 
Imagine what we could build when he has built Jerusalem inside of us. The world is waiting for its renewal and the new creation of humanity. Would to God that all the Lord's people were prophets. Because if we were, we would not cease from mental fight, from remembering and imagining and hoping against the empire way of thinking that so dominates the world in John's century and ours. Nor would our swords, our pens and paintbrushes, our lawyers' briefs, and our scientists' microscopes, they wouldn't sleep in our hands, not till we had built the hope of a new story and a new humanity, even in all our dry and thirsty lands. Now, this isn't a Sunday when we would normally celebrate communion. But after reading how God will dwell in every heart, how we will know him even as we are fully known, if there's something better we should be doing than celebrating communion. And we're going to do that now. So if you're one of the ushers who is serving it, this is probably your moment to go up to the back. St. Paul reminds us, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I think of those words and I realize that the Eucharist is an act of worship that embodies the past, the present, and the future. Whenever you eat and drink, Whenever you celebrate now what Jesus is doing in you, you remember what Jesus did when he died and rose again. And you look forward in hope to his coming again. Memory, imagination, and hope. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is and who was and who is to come. So I can't think of a better way to end our time in the book of Revelation. And we like to serve each other when we share communion. So as you pass the bread, you can say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And when you pass the cups, you can say, this is the blood of Christ shed for your sins. And if you need it, there are gluten-free wafers in the center of the plate of bread. Would you pray with me?
Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for memory. Thank you for the remembrance of your story and your love that you give to us at this table. Thank you for imagination, for giving us eyes to see our world the way you do, both its brokenness and your love for all its people. Thank you for the hope of our transformation, for your spirit dwelling in us, for the anticipation of that day when you make us and all things new. That day when all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. When we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.